0: Reese Halliburton was stunned Malinka. The league is stunned at this trade.
1: First hand for three. Halliburton. What a great read. Now he's gonna steal. Cortez throws it down. There's Turner just back in. Gets his own board. Going strong. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, colleague, and friend, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing good. How are you?
1: Uh, I'm tired. Uh, I'm in a different time zone. Uh, I have a worse microphone, as you can tell right now. I could not carry mine with me through uh, through TSA, but um, I brought something that will hopefully make do for the the next podcast, but uh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm psyched to convene and talk some pacers. I know today is a start sub sit for the last week of pacers basketball which uh pacers went two and one i think the best way i can put it it was kind of a sludgy week would that uh would that resonate with you
0: it was a weird week i mean they experienced both ends of the lopsided spectrum getting run out by memphis and then running up the score against portland and then another close game which the hey the pacers won a close game in houston
1: that'll do wonders for the net rating yes uh I guess we can just jump right in now. Um, do you want to start, or do you want me to start with uh, with start, sub, sit?
0: Yeah, I mean, just as an overview, if people haven't oh, yes. listened to this particular format, we call it start, subset, but it's effectively just like us picking something from the week of basketball that was, and start equals, like, love it, sub is something that we like or are cautiously optimistic about, and sit is something that's, like, enough already. Like, let's leave that behind, so... Um, I'll go ahead and defer to you and let you share what you're starting for this week.
1: Yeah, I think what I'm going to be starting, this is, this is tough. I've got to be honest. There are not a lot of things that I wanted to start from this week. Um, I kind of want to go with Jalen Smith, uh, just because he continues to, even with, uh, he had the, he got a contusion in the second game, uh, and it looked like he might miss time, but he ended up tying his career high back to back 17 and, uh 17. Jeez, who was the second game? I'm trying to remember right now. Houston uh, was Houston, the second Houston, game. Second game yeah. against Houston, he had 17. He had 17 against Portland as well. Um, a lot of the same stuff coming up about defense. Uh, but I, uh, I just continue to be really impressed with him being able to, to produce because it does matter to an extent. I know you can quibble about... Um, you know, what the state of the roster is and how other teams are playing them. But I, I continue to be really impressed with how Jalen is playing offensively.
0: Right. I mean, I, Isaiah Jackson's out of the lineup due to a concussion. So Goga gets reinserted as a starter. Jalen's playing more backup five, which, I mean, to this point, he's he's played some at the five in every game, but he kind of folds in at the four here a little bit more recently prior to Isaiah's injury because he would come in off the bench and play some with him. but were you at all surprised just to piggyback off of that a little bit that, that Goga was, has been the starter in, in two games now, like they did, they, they didn't pick Jalen I and mean, they could have picked either one of them.
1: Yeah. And that actually feeds in partially into one into myself, but yeah, I, uh, I was a little bit surprised by that. And I mean, that was the other area that I almost went with uh, with doing start. I mean, Goga was, I'm not going to go out of my way say he was amazing, but he, he did some really nice stuff and he's continued to be, pretty solid um he's had a really decent march and um yeah offensively i think he's shooting like 60 from three in march which is not sustainable and it's not on a high volume but um i mean he had a huge game against houston was a big reason why they ended up coming up late with the win um yeah it, 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 but yes the not to not to extrapolate too much yes he's uh i, I have been a little bit surprised by that
0: Yeah, it seemed like a little bit of a shift because I mean, we're coming off games where, and some of it I'm sure has to do with the ongoing foot soreness of how maybe they managed some of his minutes earlier, you know, at the end of February, beginning of March. But, you know, there's a game in Orlando where he plays, you know, roughly two minutes in the first half and doesn't come in when he had the big half in Washington and then he didn't play until there was a minute to go in the third quarter and Jalen played 19 straight minutes. And now, you know, we've kind of reverted back to, when the trade was initially made, Goga was the starter for those first three games. And Jalen and Ijax were, you know, coming off the bench and filling in, which I mean, Ijax missed some of that time. But now we're back to it being Goga again. I guess it kind of communicates that, in a way, um, Isaiah and Goga, the Pacers have more invested in, given that those are their own draft picks. And depending upon how they see Goga and what Jalen's market ends up shaking up to be. They do have an incentive, whether Goga is a pacer on another team, for him to be playing well at the back end of the season and for them to help him to do so. So, I can't say I was completely surprised, but in terms of the way that it seems like Rick Carlisle has distributed minutes, because even in most of these games, if you look down past the runtime, there's been very few um, up until this point when Goga logged more minutes than Isaiah Jackson or Jalen in any of the individual games. And now, you know, he had um, 26 as a starter, 23 as a starter, whereas Jalen had, you know, 13 and 17 apart. That's for what you referenced. Like it was the head contusion for, for Jalen in the one game, or else he might've logged more minutes than that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that especially in Houston, I mean, Goga goes perfect from the field up until the point when Jalen, um, had the injury, I think he had only missed one or two shots. So, I mean, they've been efficient with what looks they've had. Um, Yeah, certainly the defensive issues continue to be ongoing with both of them, which um, we'll go into some of my sub. But what if what has most stood out? I mean, I think something, too, that has stood out with both of them is that I have seen them each post a little bit more. um, And these three games where you're seeing them kind of actively look for those shots. I mean, Jalen had another moment that I've pointed out before in the Memphis game where he had Kyle Anderson on the post and took like two power dribbles and couldn't move him. And then ended up, um, I think trying to face up before he passed out of the shot. So you still want to see a little bit more decisiveness in those situations, but in terms of getting a few more deep catches, um, I think that that's a positive step forward. And certainly for Goga, you know, he had those two big shots late against Houston with under two minutes to play that kind of sealed it for the Pacers, even though he missed the free throw, but like to see him get a, a, catch step score off that pick and roll with Buddy healed That's kind of been a weak area for him this season where it's felt like if he has to catch the ball on the short roll and not make a pass or catch it and have to take one or two steps to the basket to get himself there that that can be a little bit muddled and that was a really clear moment in a clutch time of the game where he came out and delivered and then obviously got the offensive rebound and the putback. So, yeah, I think both of them had a really nice week. I mean, among the teams top scores over the last three, I believe. I don't know if I have that tab open. Yeah, I mean, Malcolm Brogdon's averaging 18.5. He only played in two games, and then it's Goga and Jalen. 17.5 and, and 16.3 as the team's leading scorers. So, good start. Yeah, no,
1: exactly. Uh, where would you go in this one? For the start? Yeah.
0: Um, mine is going to sound a little bit counterintuitive. I oh, actually no. went... I mean, it's so difficult, Mark, to parse much out of what that Memphis Can and Portland I just say, game trying was.
1: Trying to find a start in general was so difficult for this, and I don't mean to be like very down and out and unfair to this team, but yeah, finding finding the finding something start worthy was uh, was difficult for today. Well,
0: they, exactly. I mean, the games have just been so weird in a lot yeah. of respects. So, Tyrese, an interesting last three games in terms of shot volume um has not attempted double figure shot attempts in any of the three and from an efficiency standpoint uh is at eight points shooting 37 overall 23 percent from three and he's continued to have four more turnovers in each of the last eight or nine games with the exception of one i think so um not necessarily to the standard of what he was producing from a production standpoint when he first debuted, especially over those first four. And I feel like some of the tendency that I'm seeing or hearing has been like, I mean, this was even, I saw this tweeted on some places and it's not inaccurate, but heading into that Portland game, they're like, well, Malcolm Brogdon's out for rest. That means Tyrese is going to get to do more and we'll see more of what he was prior to that. Like Almost as if Malcolm Brogdon is the only variable that's leading to why Tyrese's production has been down in games when they've both been available by comparison to the games when Malcolm's been out. And I'm not going to say that that has no impact at all. I think both of us have talked about um, in certain late game situations, having a few questions about why some of the offense has been tilted and the way that it has been, or, you know, when they were in Washington and Malcolm had like over 24 drives, there was reason to continue giving him the ball and it made sense or, you know, late against Cleveland when he had the matchup against Laurie and it makes sense. So yeah, there will be cases where Tyrese does more, but where I'm headed with this is that that's not the only thing that's changing in the games for why his his productivity might be fluctuating. So I picked the Portland game, and my start for Tyrese is him being aggressive against aggressive pick-and-roll defense. It's kind of stunning to a degree when you watch how he reacts against different coverages, at least since he's been a pacer, and some of this showed up in Sacramento as well too. Because when I wrote the initial piece on the night of the trade deadline, the first clip that I pointed out, Against the Sixers was late in the game. After you know he had his 38 points or whatever he'd scored, the Sixers started being very aggressive, and he had he saw two screens. George and Yang was at the level. They brought another screen. Joel and Bead was at the level, and he used the hesitation, got around effectively the trap, and immediately fired the ball. And there was a moment like that against Portland. Portland was using predominantly an at the level trapping defense for the majority of that game, which was not the case against. Houston and uh Memphis and he immediately like it's, just, it's very soothing to watch after what we saw for effectively you know the first 20-25 games of the season to see somebody have the ball in those situations and so quickly move it and is that a shot for him no but is it putting the defense into the rotation and moving it yes and part of what I want to point out with the coverage is it's not just him getting the ball and immediately, you know, getting it out. He's actually going at the back foot of the big in a lot of those situations when the big is up higher toward him. And I want him, I just want to see a bit more of that when teams aren't guarding him in that way, meaning that when we watched him play against Memphis, and this is why I don't want to just heap all of the blame on Malcolm Brogdon for why his productivity is down Steven Adams is in a deep job. Tyus Jones did a good job defending Tyrese Halliburton. Like I want to give him credit for that. But, you know, Tyus would be in rear view pursuit, might keep Tyrese from doing a quick pull-up too, and he would have space to take, you know, one or two more dribbles to the rim or get to his floater. And there was a few times, you know, after he had missed a few of those in the third, where it's like I'm not even looking at the rim. Now I'm just skipping it to the other side and that led to some turnovers. You know, and the same thing happened in the second quarter where when they went with Jaron Jackson jr. At the five, they were switching everything. And to the Pacers credit, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing for you to continue running offense when there are switches. But like, if he had Jaron Jackson jr. Out there and you know, and there's only so many people like him or like an Evan Mobley, he was passing out of that a lot of the time, instead of trying to go at and get the defense to commit and into rotation. So what I want to start to summarize that very long uh, example is that I I liked seeing Tyrese be aggressive against Portland and obviously different caliber of defenses. But when the bigs are up higher, he will move toward them and actually challenge them more so than against different type of coverages. And I just want to see more of that, even if it doesn't necessarily lead to a higher volume of shot attempts for him. Just over these last 10 games, seeing him get deeper and actually engage with the big.
1: That's such a great point. I really appreciate you bringing that up because that is—it uh, was very nice to see. And I think that was—I think he averaged eight points per game over the the last three, which is again, like you're mentioning, part of that's just not shooting well from the field. But yeah, it's it's been a little bit of a process. But uh, I agree. Like you, you, were able to see him do more of that, and um, it's encouraging because, like we talked about, like he's capable of getting to, into the paint more, and we just want to see it. And I think it was—it uh, was definitely encouraging.
0: Right, because I mean, it was even somewhat. Jarring in the Houston game because they're in the third quarter, and this is why I want to point out different caliber of defenses. Like, I'm not necessarily expecting Tyrese to break down Jaron Jackson Jr. and be suddenly drawing contact at the rim and other stuff like that. That would be a pretty large leap to expect over this small sample of games. But when you're in Houston and Shen Goon is in, you know, not even an aggressive drop, dropped back. And as soon as you come around the corner, you're passing out of that. Or if you do get him on a switch, I mean, I think it's very good that Tyrese can create self-created threes and drag bigs out into space. Like, I don't want to be critical of that. But it was jarring because when the fourth quarter started and they were playing Dwayne Washington Jr. with uh, Buddy Heald and Lance Stevenson, they ran the exact same action with Shen Goon in the exact same coverage. And Dwayne Washington Jr. twice went to the rim, like just, you know, torched him and got an and one. So like it's in those situations where, when he sees a matchup where that one should be favorable, like I'm not trying to throw a bunch of shade on Shen but that, that one should be a little bit more favorable that you might be willing to test more of that out. And that's why I just want to say like, yes, he was playing with Malcolm Brogdon more in that game for whatever reason, they decided they weren't going to stagger the two of them as much when they were in Houston, because there was extended minutes in both halves with Lance and Dwayne and buddy on the floor. But I, I just want to see a, a little bit more of that, and and that's why I'm starting it because he did do it against Portland. It didn't lead to shot attempts, but he did do it.
1: Yeah, no, I uh, we're in lockstep on that. Um, are you ready for my sub? My sub kind of fits in with. I feel like every time we have the pod, we end up spending like a half hour talking about the front court. Um.
0: <laughs> it's true. It's yeah. true, but it's necessary.
1: <laughs> My sub is Justin Anderson. Um, Justin Anderson had a really nice game against Portland. I thought he was solid against Houston as well. Obviously the production wasn't the same. Um, but like, this is, <laughs> it's just another thing that we're talking about. Like he was in Dallas with, uh, with Rick Carl when he was there, he was originally drafted by Dallas. Um, things did not work out with that. Um but he got a second opportunity with the Pacers this time and uh, he ended up starting. And it's not, again, it's not, that he was bad. Like I thought he was good, but I just don't know what to make of Justin Anderson playing 30 plus minutes and Jalen Smith playing like, what did he play? I think he played 17 yesterday um, or not yesterday, two days ago against Portland and I get it on on one hand because like we've, we've talked about, there's a fine line. Like, you know, you, you don't want to just give a young player minutes. Like at some point there has to be an earning of minutes. You're not just getting them because, um, but also at the same time, I'm just like, what is, what is the back end of the season if it's not being used to like play, play guys like Terry Taylor or like, I mean, Terry played a decent amount yesterday, but even then, like we've talked about like his minutes have been wonky I, It just, it it, it was weird for me. I don't know where you were at on that. Again, it was nice to see him play. I thought that he did some really positive things. He brings a lot defensively that um, they can miss at the point of attack at times, but I don't know. It's just a little weird.
0: No, this is a good sit because I felt similarly conflicted when I saw that pop up as a notification when that was the starting lineup for both games. I was a little bit surprised, but then I was like, maybe I shouldn't be because if you think back to the game, that they played in Oklahoma city. I remember you and I talked about it because there was a lot of pushback from people because Isaiah Jackson effectively didn't play. And I, I seem to remember there was some conversation on the broadcast that like he might've uh, been getting his hip worked on, or I I don't remember what exactly it was. Like he was never listed on the injury report, but he didn't play. And Terry Taylor, played at backup five in that game behind sabonis and sabonis logged big minutes and everybody's like why is terry taylor getting to play and it was after a big game it was after um he had had a, a a strong week with the mad ants and they they decided to get a look at him in that spot and to terry's credit much like what you're saying with justin anderson like i didn't think he played poorly in that okc game it was just people questioning like you know why aren't these minutes going to Isaiah Jackson he needs opportunity to develop and i think you and i were kind of like well after the trade deadline probably somebody's going to get moved and there's going to be opportunity but um probably just somewhat of a reward for Terry Taylor and to see more opportunity and i Through the most generous lens, that's what I want to see this as because, you know, Justin did score. He hit some threes. He did some other nice things as a cutter that opened up stuff for other people in that Portland game. I like what you're referencing with regards to his defense. I think that there was even times in Houston where a couple of times, you know, people tried to post Malcolm Brogdon. He came over and made sure he was a shadow to provide help so that that didn't become a mismatch. Um, But yeah, when you're seeing that when Terry Taylor's been on the roster, it is a little bit tough to figure that Justin Anderson's automatically going into the starting lineup. And as it turned out in the Portland game, like in the fourth quarter, they mainly played almost an entirely G league lineup, which, you know, I liked that the guys that the Pacers have added from the G league this year, like, I don't want to degrade them at all, but like that said a lot about Portland that I think that they went into the fourth quarter and they're up by like what 12. And then they ended up ballooning the lead to what it was, Yeah, but um yeah, I mean, on, on in Jalen's case, it might have been somewhat that, you know, they weren't really going to play Justin Anderson at the five, but they needed Jalen to play the five because they didn't have Isaiah Jackson. So maybe that led to why some of his minutes were the way that it was. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that when I saw that, it was a little bit hard. But, I mean, every time we're on this podcast, I feel like we have somewhat of a conversation about why the front court rotation is seems arbitrary if, if I don't really know what other word to use at times because I try to look through it and see like hey you know what's the matchup and in some respects like when you're playing a team like Portland or even you know prior to the all-star break when they played Minnesota and you're going against you know blitzing or, or trapping defenses Goga fits that pretty well which is something I should have said before that I think he's been um, pretty solid in four on three situations, making passes against that. Now yeah. Portland's defense was very squishy, but he made the right reads. So I think that that Rick Carlisle is probably thinking like he's our best bet that when Tyrese does need to get off the ball, you know he made some nice bounce passes to O'Shea as a cutter, like what he did in the Minnesota game. So I kind of want to look at it and point to specific reasons why I think those things are what they are. And I did think that Jalen might have had one of his worst defensive games against uh, it
1: Oakland? was i i was telling you yeah. before we got on the pod i didn't finish the game uh, i got about halfway through before i had to hop on here but his pick and roll defense in the yeah. first half was atrocious like it was very very rough uh, i don't i mean he hasn't been spectacular on that end for for much of his time with the pacers but that was like the low light yesterday
0: which which is going to parlay into my my son, oh, so no. so I'll leave I'll leave that there. But I mean that that might have played a part too. But yeah, um, if I can, can we? I don't know. Maybe I don't think it's going to be your sit, so it's probably not going to come up. But can we give some flowers to Terry Taylor on like Terry Taylor in the post against bigger players in that fourth quarter? Like I don't know if you got to that yet, but he was doing like sh- more stuff where it's just it's incredible to me how strong he is.
1: Yes, I agree. And he's so good at using his length, too. Like, he plays a lot bigger than his size.
0: Yeah. So, uh, now that we can get off that positive note and head to my sub. My sub is the ever-changing approach to defense. I feel like this could be Uh, an entire corner of the podcast, Mark, because... I mean, I don't know if defense is a thing that really happened against the Memphis Grizzlies, so... We can probably leave that somewhat aside. I think that train wreck was probably foreseeable for, you know, going into it even without John Moran. I, I'm guessing that you probably expected the Pacers were going to get wrecked in that game. Oh, yeah, because definitely. Of what their transition defense has been since the deadline. I mean, I didn't look this number up this morning, but what I did write a brief game preview for that game, and it was like, you know, the Pacers ranked dead last in efficiency on transition plays per 100. And the Grizzlies are number one in transition frequency. So this seems, you know, not great, especially when you yourselves are going to have trouble leaking out because they're such a good offensive rebounding team. So it it was somewhat predictable, and especially with how good Memphis has been, even in games when Jaw hasn't played. But I'm going to leave that one aside and hop over to Houston and say that, you know, it's been kind of a, back and forth with goga and what this team has been post-trade and that they've been doing a lot more switching and yet it doesn't really seem like they want to do a lot of switching with goga and then he doesn't always communicate so sometimes they're doing two things at once so they come out against houston and they have goga at the level and all of those pick and rolls i'm like oh well we've now hit bingo we're at another coverage and he got split a few times, but I didn't think I didn't think he was bad. It wasn't like what you're seeing sometimes in drop with him where he just backs up to the stanchion and there's no impact on the ball. And sometimes he goes back to the roller too soon. So it's like, you know, maybe they made a slight adjustment and then they were doing the same thing, you know, with Jalen and continued having Goga at the level in the Portland game. And I guess I give them credit because they're continuing to try to tinker when it would be pretty easy for a team with a bad defensive rating that's not going into the playoffs to just be like, you know what? Let's just, you know, whatever we do is what we do. We're just going to try to focus on what strides we can make on the offensive end and just try to patch these holes until, until we can get to the summer and get Miles Turner and whoever else healthy or whatever this roster is going to be. But they did continue to adjust it. And one thing that stood out was in the third quarter, like Christian Wood was wrecking Goga. Like, let's just be honest. Uh, like, he yeah, had, that was he not had, fun. No, it was it was it was poor. So as strong as Goga was on the offensive end and was perfect from the field, nine of nine, like I wasn't exactly surprised when they took him out in the fourth quarter at like the five minute mark. I'm trying to see if I have that play by play. Yeah, so they took him out at yeah around the six minute mark and went with O'Shea and Terry Taylor and then started switching everything and. I think afterwards they said, like, well, we didn't want Goga to play the entire fourth. We wanted to get him a breather, which I'm sure is probably at least part of the reason. But also, like, you couldn't just keep letting Christian Wood do whatever he wanted. He had 30 points through three quarters. And then, if you notice, in the fourth quarter, he only attempted one shot. And he did put the ball on the floor and get around O'Shea Brissett once or twice in that game. But what they ended up doing over that final five minutes was putting O'Shea on Christian Wood similar to what we've seen in other games prior to with Sabonis, where, you know, Shea might guard Vucevic or Keelan Martin might guard Gobert. or Justin Holiday guards Kristaps Perzingis and then they put Sabonis on the lower usage player. So this is what I'm getting to. Like, clearly, if they're willing to put Goga at the level, they're still willing to adjust and see what will work. And then they, they obviously wanted to try to win that game because they knew, hey, Christian Wood's going off. We got to make some type of an adjustment. So, they put O'Shea on him so they could switch everything and basically just hid Goga in the corner as a help defender. So, my point being is, which I wrote this in my article um, about one thing that I wanted to see from each of the players under 25, and Isaiah Jackson didn't play in these games. But if you're willing to do that type of a coverage adjustment to keep Sabonis out of pick and roll or to allow you to switch against, you know, DeMar DeRozan, or if you're willing to do it here, like they were against Charlotte when Goga guarded Cody Martin. Why aren't you willing to do it when it might be an asset to you? Like it, it might genuinely be an asset to you when you're starting with O'Shea and Isaiah Jackson to mix in throughout the game to keep opponents off balance and put um, – O'Shea on the center and let Isaiah Jackson just use all that ground coverage and move as a help to vendor baseline to baseline, like we've said. And yet that's not really something we've seen, which is why I'm using this as a sub, because I, I approve of the fact that they're still trying to make things work, even though it is somewhat of an indictment that there's only 10 games left and they're still having to look for what they want to do on that end of the floor. But yet we don't exactly know how this roster is going to shape up and what position they even long-term envision Isaiah Jackson being at this point. They've played him mostly at the five, even when he's played with Jalen, he's still mostly at the five. And some of that's because they've had injuries. But if you are planning to return Miles Turner, at least through the rest of his contract, it just seems like it would have been beneficial over these games to have Isaiah defend at the four in spots, especially if you're willing to do it with Goga. If you're willing to let O'Shea defend at the five with Goga, why can't we see that in spots with Isaiah Jackson?
1: Yeah, um, I agree. I think we've, we've, we've talked about this so much this year, just in, uh, you know, okay. We're seeing the flashes of stuff that makes sense defensively, but why, why is it, Being used as a, I don't want to say like in the Houston game that it would have made sense to do it the entire game necessarily, but I'm just kind of like, we knew what it was like, okay. We knew going into this game. We don't, we don't need to see Goga defend Christian one on a switch to know that it's a bad idea. Like uh, I feel like that's something you could have come in and just had game planned already. Like, okay. um, We probably don't want Christian. I think that, I mean, that was his career high. If I remember correctly, or he, he his career. high He just set a new career high last night. Um, but that was weird. And I agree with you, too. Like it, it just felt like so often earlier this year, that was uh, something that they didn't want to do um, or that they were. You know, it's more like this is uh, our enemy rather than our ally to, to try and find ways to be um, selective defensively. And yeah, I uh, it was weird.
0: I mean, and yeah, and sometimes you want to keep little wrinkles like that in your back pocket so that you can use them in the fourth quarter. So like, it's not even so much that because my, I suspect that if they had done it, like you're not going to do it over an entire game, but if they had done it more, Houston would have been better at recognizing, oh, hey, you know, O'Shea switched out to the ball and now Christian Woods on Tyrese Halliburton, and we should probably swing the ball and try to get it to him instead of jacking another contested three but they were doing stuff like that late and it 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 worked for the Pacers it threw them off their rhythm good adjustment it's just like i said i don't understand why you're willing to do it as a protective thing but you're not willing to do it to gather basically do research and intelligence on you know getting Isaiah Jackson used potentially next year if he does play some minutes with, with miles in a four or five arrangement, or, you know, maybe they don't see that. Maybe they see him as the backup five, or maybe they're not planning on retaining all of these veterans and they see him doing even more than that. I mean, that, that's in part why it's hard for us. I mean, I don't know how you feel, but I still feel even post trade deadline that it's kind of hard to evaluate what this team does because I still don't fully know what the vision is. And I'm not saying they should totally know that right now themselves, because you know, the playoffs haven't even happened. Other teams don't know what they're going to be doing. The draft lottery hasn't happened to know exactly what moves and what direction they want to take, but to just sit here and talk about it, it can be kind of hard to project like, what should guys be doing now to improve themselves over these next 10 games. And we don't necessarily know what role they're even moving toward.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like I, uh, I I think our, like the the tldr of all of our podcasts has been um there are positive things happening there are cool things happening there are good things happening to note but like also i just don't really know what it's supposed to be building towards like you can see ideas of where individuals or, or parts are building towards but overall it's kind of like i don't know what this is supposed to look like next year or the year after like, I, I don't really know what the idea or vision is so i i think yeah we we definitely agree on that
0: yeah. Can I guess I don't know if you've read it, but did you read the interview that Tyrese did with GQ magazine? I did. OK, so did did any particular quote from that stand out to you at all?
1: Um, I don't want to steal your thunder on this and I might I don't, I don't want to get it wrong either. So, so go ahead.
0: OK, so when he was asked what's been the biggest change between the franchises and. This was Tyrese's response, and I'm, I'm going to try to read it as monotone as I can because I don't want to have inflection in my voice where he might not have. But he said, the biggest thing is the outlook. In Sacramento, it was a lot of, we're trying to make the play-in game and all these things, but we weren't winning. And it was pretty obvious we weren't going to meet our goals. It was going to take a big turn to win a lot of games and get there. When I got to Indiana, that was evident. The same record as the Kings, too. But they were like, listen, we're not going to make the playoffs, but we're going to build winning habits, and it's not going to be the same thing next year. We're going to change this.
1: Yeah. That was the one I was thinking you were going for. Um, yeah. And I, I just, I, I remember reading that, I'm like, well, I mean, I guess, like, I I don't, people will disagree with me. I feel like not all that different about the Pacers that I do with the Kings. Like, I, I guess you can make the case that the Pacers maybe have a better crop of young players. I don't know entirely that I'd agree with that. I think it's more that they have better surrounding veterans. Um, But again, like in terms of actually building towards a real title contender, which they've taught, that's not just us projecting. That's us saying. And I think too, it's a good thing to hit on because um, I can't remember who said it in the IC comments, but they thought we were super off base and being a little bit too doom and gloom, which I get, but... I do think just being realistic about what this team is saying they want to do and projecting what they're going to be. um, I don't see it right now. Like I really don't see that right now. Um, And maybe I'm being a little bit naive or net naive is the wrong word. Maybe I'm being a little bit like blinders on just because I'm seeing this, but just compared to every, every team I'm looking at around the league, I, I can't get there. Um, I, I don't know. It's very odd. And I also want to say, too, this is not shade and diaries, but the um, one of the like the headline was like his rebirth. And I was like, I'm not trying to be harsh. Like, it, I know it's very different to go to a new team, but I don't know about rebirth. That, that was like it was a little bit much for me. But um, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've, I apologize if some of the listeners thought we were doom and gloom on the last episode. I um, wasn't what I was trying to do. I was just trying to say, I mean, when we closed it out, that if the goal is to be doing like basically, you know, the one-year tank scenario where if we can comparatively, you know, look at the Raptors and see, Hey, you know, they weren't in the playoffs. They got Scotty Barnes. Now they look like, you know, they're at least going to be a play-in team might be in the playoffs. Um, Yeah. Potentially. It's just that if you're saying that you don't want to be a tough out, I'm just struggling to see how, in a year's time, you're not going to be a tough out. And that, again, is with us not having any other context. We don't know who they're going to be drafting to add to Mm -hmm. this current group of players, or if some people might be traded for other players that might make it better I mean our opinions I'm sure will probably change vastly by August and I do like how many possibilities that the Pacers have and how many different directions they can go in I think they did what they needed to do at the trade deadline for the most part I think that there's a lot to be excited about with Tyrese Halliburton it's just that it's it's a struggle for me to think that if you want to get to contender status that staying Pat necessarily with the mixture of youth and veterans is the way to get there. But I mean, I don't really think it's going to matter necessarily what we think because it seems like there's been enough that's come out in terms of, you know, wanting to do a soft real rebuild and other stuff that they want to get back to, you know, trying to be competitive. And again, like, I think that if, if just the people that they have on the bench and street clothes were healthy and they had a settled defensive system, They will be a better team than what they currently are right now, like without a doubt. Um, but I I just question what the ceiling of that will be in a year versus if you did some other things and maybe you know two or three years from now, would you be closer to what you're saying your goal is? That was that was mainly it. So if people thought we were being doom and gloom, I do apologize for that because if if you're saying that you like all the different stuff and all the different directions the Pacers can go in and like what various young players have been doing. I think that there is reason for optimism and from that standpoint.
1: Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I guess we can go to our, um, to our sit now, right? Yes. Um, wow. Decisions, decisions. Uh, I think, gosh, see this one is hard too. Um, I could go the way of injuries cause it just keeps happening. Um, Like, especially for Isaiah Jackson, I really hope that this is not a forecast of the rest of his career. Um, Feels like every time he's able to start getting some real good court time, he has another injury pop up. So hopefully he's good soon. Um, I'm going to go with O'Shea Brissett's at-rim finishing, uh, which is something that we have hit on before. uh, But basically anything that isn't a putback or in transition which shout out to that. I mean, that transition play was, was nasty. That dunk was so sick.
0: People are probably going to be angry with us that that wasn't a start. Again, I, I apologize for I, I contemplated,
1: I contemplated very hard about making that the start. Um, but it's just like his, I mean, in the month of, of March, he's shooting below 40% from the field. And that's while shooting decently from three on, on pretty high volume, which that part's been nice. I think he's been even more, uh, ready to let it fly from deep, which has been nice to see. Um, but that's been kind of with as much as driving lanes have started to open up for him even more. Um, the at-room finishing off the bounce has just been really rough for him. and continues to be rough. And I wanted to check in with you and see where you're at on it. And um, I know probably not a lot has changed since last time we talked about it, but it is uh, it has definitely been a little bit of a sore spot recently.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think he's – done better comparatively in some of those situations i don't have the number in front of me Mm -hmm. um at drawing contact yeah than what we would have seen at this point in time last year so that's something i don't think it's completely coincidental that he had a big game against the boston celtics and a big game against portland on sunday and also played really well against Minnesota because of what all those coverages are. And this is not me taking anything away from him. I think it's very valuable to have a player like O'Shea Brissett against a blitzing defense who, when you get put in and you have an odd man advantage, is going to move and make it a choice for that, you know, weak side tagger to choose like, okay, O'Shea's cutting to the rim, but Buddy's also up there at the wing, which one do I go with and is my teammate going to cover me if I rotate and stay with O'Shea? And then he gets those cuts. Um, I think all that's very valuable. I think he continues to do stuff every game where when he doesn't have the ball, sometimes he's making cuts or he's setting screens that aren't going to end in any type of stat value for himself, but do do things for his teammates and his activity overall. But yeah, I mean, I think moving forward, the three-point shot continues to be somewhat up and down. I think he's going to have games where he's going to get hot and hit three or four, and then he might go for a stretch where he's like two of 15 over, you know, however many games. But if opponents start to believe in that a little bit more, and because he has been a little bit more active as a movement shooter and is going to draw, you know, longer contests where a defender might be off balance when they're moving out toward him, you want him to be able to attack a closeout and be a little bit more composed. And it feels like um, he kind of his limbs are always sprawling on his finishes. Yeah. Like it's it when you watched Edmund Sumner a year ago, um, I had somebody from who covers another team once tell me that Edmund Sumner is very linguine like when he finishes <laughs> at the rim. That's pretty good, and it's true. But like he had improved, and you know, letting the ball go softly, so it wasn't just like he was a meteor crashing to Earth over last season. And sometimes you want O'Shea to do some of the same because his limbs feel very unruly when he gets to the basket and then he's you know trying to adjust his body in midair and he he still needs to um make strides in that area and that probably needs to be something at the top of his list headed into the summer um moving forward
1: i'd ask how confident are you in that getting better because i do think like we we've definitely seen him put together much better um dribble moves, which I think has been good. Like he's been a lot better this season. We saw the fruits of that in summer league. Like we talked about it then. Um, so that's been nice, but how confident are you in him actually being able to improve that as a, as a finisher off the bounce?
0: I mean, it depends. Cause what you're saying there, like a year ago, he was barely driving the ball at all. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, almost the entirety of his shots was either threes or off cuts, mainly from assists from Sabonis. So The fact that he's even doing it does show progress and i do think he's progressed in other areas and i do think he definitely really wants to stay in the nba so i think he'll put in the work to do it but i think almost more so or at least in conjunction with the finishing i think there's something to spacing when you're you know a big or a forward who you know may not be considered a knockdown shooting threat so maybe a team helps off you a little bit that if you can attack into that space and make a pass, it can still tilt the defense, even if he isn't necessarily attacking the closeout. And I think that that's something that would happen because I think in almost every game, there's at least one spot where I'm like, O'Shea's playing with his head down and he missed a very obvious pass when, you know, Tyrese was wide open or Malcolm Brogdon was waving his arms and he could have, you know, put the ball on the floor and made that skip pass instead of, trying to finish in those situations that might even be the easier evolution, not to say that the finishing is never going to matter, but that could be a half step that would mitigate it somewhat.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And that's something that we see with young guards too, like finding out, okay, maybe if I cut down some of my, uh, maybe I'm cutting down my frequency, but okay, if I'm making the defense actually think more about, am I going to throw up a wild attempt or, are they, am I going to punish them for helping into the paint? Like, I think that that's um, a really important thing to look at. Like, can, cause part of like, you're like, we're hitting on a little bit. Like um, not that, you know, it's not, uh, we're talking more about pacing when we're looking at guys running like pick and roll or, or coming off of ball screens into the paint. But like, okay, even for somebody coming off of a drive, like O'Shea is like very NASCAR coming downhill. Like he is an absolute train coming to the rim and it doesn't feel like slowing down and deceleration is something that's on his side right now. Um, And if he is able to maybe, uh, I mean, part of what makes him so um, at times effective and and able to draw fouls because of the, the, the velocity comes into the paint, but also like that's part of what makes it harder for him to finish at the rim sometimes. So I, I think, yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Like, can he maybe slow down a little bit? without obviously, you know, like slowing down to a level where the defense is catching up to him, but, um, just calming himself down a little bit more coming off the catch.
0: Yeah. My sit could have gone in a, several different directions because I think that we haven't even mentioned one thing yet, which is buddy healed has taken a lot of shots.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was, uh, you could say he was launching in Houston, um, much more than the rockets, uh, that was uh, – we, we went a really long time with, without a terrible punt, so I had to get that one in. But, uh, yeah, that was uh, – this three-game stretch was a lot in terms of Buddy Hield's shot volume.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, four of 20 in Houston. I think you probably could have shaved off. When I watched that back, I think that there was probably roughly four or five at a minimum that's like, yeah – You probably didn't need to take that one. I mean, I think it gets somewhat of a give or take. This isn't actually going to be my sit. I just thought that we should probably talk a little bit about it. Um, I'm cheating and kind of have to because there's something a little bit bigger that you and I haven't talked about yet. But um, I think that there is value in having Buddy sprint ahead of the action and shoot in transition. And right now he's just in a fairly deep shooting slump. I mean, I looked and he's missed 32 of his last 42 threes. I don't know if you knew that. But, um, sounds right. Yeah. I mean, the, the one thing with Buddy is he still has gravity, whether he makes those shots or not. I mean, you can see it every game. If he goes cuts, defenders that causes hesitation, it opens stuff for other teammates. Um, him standing further behind the arc makes for a longer closeout. Um, I think the gravity is still there, even though he isn't shooting the ball well. And I think that there is value, like I said, in transition threes because those create, I mean, you know, there's very little assembly required for somebody to you know, do a slide away three, or I cut into three, or a quick step into three, trailer three and transition, like that's shots that are almost always there. And if you do hit a few of them, it can cause opponents to have to rush at you a little bit more and overreact. And then that opens up other stuff. So it's not even so much me being worried about like the gunning after getting over half court, as it is like, I don't think any of us signed up to see Buddy Healed ISO against Christian Wood into a mid-range two. Like it's some of that stuff that I'm kind of questioning why he has like free pass for. Um, I know that he values getting to be a starter and having the bigger role. And to some extent, like him getting to do more and, and to his credit, I think he has the highest assist percentage in his career up until these last couple of games. Maybe it would have dipped a little bit. He is getting to the rim more. Um, than what he was for earlier in the season in Sacramento. And there probably is dual value because if he does play above his level, again, it's tough to talk about because I don't know what the Pacers' long-term vision with him is. I think there's value in having Buddy Heald on your team under the right set of circumstances. But if he plays well, that gives the Pacers another option of something they could do this summer if, if they would want to flip him or retain him. So I see it. It's just that I think a little bit of it could be shaved back and tilted to other players. But then again, some of this goes back to Tyrese because I know that of all the teammates, Tyrese probably has the best chemistry with Buddy. And there are occasions where like, oh, Jaron Jackson has switched out to me and I'm now passing the ball to Buddy at the slot and now Buddy attacks and makes a pass or Buddy's taking that shot. And that's an active decision that Tyrese is making and Buddy's just doing something with the grenade that's being thrown to him. But um just before we get into what my actual sit is, what have you thought about his shot selection and and um what's going on with him over these last, you know, roughly six games, but especially the last three?
1: Yeah. Um I mean it's not his shot selection has been really rough. Um and I think it, it probably looks I mean it's easy to say, but it looks better if more of them are going in. Um part of what's been his issue too, and I think uh, you and I are probably more buddy supporters than the general uh, person. I know a lot of people get frustrated with him because the the shot selection, a can be really maddening, but like we've talked about, I mean, his gravity as a shooter is like, it it is very hard to replicate. Like he does a lot of positive things for the offense, even if the shot isn't falling. Um, But he's like very prone to slumps. Like he is not a consistency is not the buddy healed way. Like if you look over the 82 game stretch, like, yes, it's very consistent, but uh, he just has like a very big issue with, he'll go through a, like we're talking about, like hitting 10 shots out of 40 over a, a five or six game stretches, uh, is pretty commonplace for him. It has been throughout his NBA career, which has been tough. Um, I think my biggest issue has just been some of the pull-up stuff he's doing from mid-range and, and yeah. some of the, I, I understand the value of early shot clock threes at times, but some of the ones that he'll he'll take, I'm just like, dude. Like I, I, it's again, it's the one where it's like, okay, if you hit that awesome, but the process is just like, it's not good. And I think we saw that in the Memphis game. I don't want to totally put this on him, but a lot of the issue with, with that lead blowing up in Memphis was they, they took some really rough early shot clock stuff that missed. And then you have one guy who's at the rim still and Memphis is getting out, you know, with, four on three in transition and bam, it's a 20 point lead for Memphis. And, and obviously much other stuff goes on in that game that results in them being down that much, mostly just Memphis being a lot more talented and being a better team. But um, that stuff was, was very killer. Um, and I would really like to see him clean up some of his shot selection, but I also know it's probably just not going to happen because this is what Buddy Hills 29. Um, I think this is a sixth year in the NBA, which doesn't seem long enough. In some ways but yeah it's uh it, it was definitely a little bit painful
0: for sure and I think that that's a good point because it, you need to adjust what you're doing based on who the opponent is like you don't ever want to take you know quote-unquote bad shots but taking quick ones against a team that's capable of running you out the gym when your transition defense is already struggling puts you at an even more precarious position and some of them too, like, yeah, the transition threes that I'm getting at are like, you know, he runs ahead. They have numbers where they could potentially, you know, a big is running to the rim. You could get an offensive rebound and he lets that fly. Like, yeah, that that's good. But if he catches it and like takes a dribble, spins around, and there's somebody standing two feet from him and he lets it fly, then it becomes, you know, what are we doing here? But um thought we should touch on that because it seems like it's been a little bit more predominant topic. And I, I I suspect that we'll probably see more of it on Wednesday against his old team, the Sacramento Kings, but, Oh yeah. Um, but we shall see. Um, so my actual sit, because we haven't talked about it yet. Um, TJ Warren out for the remainder of the season. Um, I didn't know what your thought process was when the Pacers released their statement. You know, they say that, Basically, he and his representatives, along with the Pacers, and I understand where they're coming from, came to the conclusion that it'd be best for him to prepare for next season because, after all, at that point in time, there's only 12 games remaining. The clock's ticking. He hasn't played in essentially two seasons, so he was going to be rusty. He's never played a game for Rick Carlisle, so he'd also be taking minutes away from some of the young guys. You're not going to be making the playoffs this year, so he's going to sit out the games that's not so much my issue I would have valued if he was ready like let's say he was ready after the all-star break similar to when Malcolm Brogdon was I would have valued seeing he and Miles Turner and Malcolm all play together but um, that didn't happen they clearly weren't ready at that point in time and um, other franchise goals and whatnot for the back end of this season in terms of seeing younger players and evaluating their talent but what was your reaction when Woj then tweeted that he's had consecutive or he's recovered from consecutive stress reactions or stress fractures in his left foot?
1: Um, I have multiple things I want to hit on with this. Good, uh, I'm glad.
0: I'm glad. Yeah,
1: I number one, like that just kind of goes with what we've seen. Um, I am a little bit I don't know, I get uh, I don't like the way that and I I don't mean this as shade of pace with fans. I just mean in general, I really don't appreciate how fans can be about guys getting injured and and how, um, they talk about guys who were injured. Um, like I mainly just feel for TJ, like this sucks. It's a shitty situation. Like you and I both know how much this dude loves basketball. Like, I mean, it's been his Twitter bio for forever. Like at a gym near you. And he doesn't get to do that. Like he hasn't gotten to just play basketball and that's been his thing. That's what he loves doing. Um, So that's frustrating for him, but I am just really frankly frustrated with how, uh, the Pacers have handled this, if we're being honest. And, uh, I know part of it is difficult because you never know exactly what all is in play with, you know, how, uh, how a guy is handling their rehab or how a team is handling things or how setbacks go. But I just wish that they had been more open and honest about how things were going, um, not because I care about like for like betting purposes or for fantasy, but more just like it makes it so much easier to understand and evaluate the team if you're um understanding okay Tj had a setback instead of just weeks not months like the weeks not months over and over and over again was horseshit frankly for being honest um I found that really frustrating um and I'm sure they don't give that I mean clearly they don't care because they just did it for the entire year but like, it just sets very weird expectations. And I think that's what creates people maybe getting frustrated. If you know um, a couple months ago, yeah, TJ had a setback and we we might not see him this year. I feel like that's much easier to um, just take then instead of this constant playing out. Well, maybe TJ will be back. Well, maybe TJ will be back. Like, I feel like it's unfair to him in some ways, uh, but it's also just like, it's just confusing. Like, I, so I didn't like that. And I would say, too, um, on top of the not seeing him play at the end of the year, and I'm not saying I totally disagree with you, but to me, I look at it almost like, like PG coming back in 14-15. Like, I'd rather see TJ play, like, just play on a minutes restriction to close the year. And, um, yes, this team's not making the play in or the playoffs, but like you mentioned, like, If you're trying to evaluate what this team is at for next year, I'd rather see TJ come out and play like eight games for 15 to 20 minutes a night, just to get something back on court, you know? And like, same thing with miles. Like, no, it doesn't mean that they have to go out and win, but I mean, if they're playing Justin Anderson, 36 minutes in a game against a team that is clearly tanking, like, I feel like there's, it's a reasonable to find time for, for TJ to be playing without totally adjusting the course. But, um obviously it's different between him and MPG, but I do think like in looking at that year like that, year was pretty lost already. Um, I know that they could have potentially slid into the final playoff spot if things have gone right, but um I don't know. It's it's a murky situation and I have not enjoyed it. And I just hope TJ can get healthy and right again at some point. So I'm just watching him play.
0: Yeah, murky is is the apt word to use here. I mean, well, especially because he's a
1: free agent this summer too, which is and which that's
0: is what nice. I'm expecting is is suspecting is why he he was not going to come back. Yeah. Um. Aside from what the team's court current course and trajectory is, like, I doubt if you think back. I mean, you make a very good point because I remember Paul George talking about those six games afterwards and being like, "Hey, that was a really important step for me because it allowed me to clear." mental hurdles and even though i looked really rough when i came back next year that that was already off the table for me but paul george also wasn't trying to get paid um i'm sure tj warren and his agent aren't you know super thrilled about having potentially prospective teams um seeing him come out and and perform at a very rusty level which i think should be expected so um my guess is that's in part what played into that but on the on, on the standpoint of how that they framed it the whole time, I mean, I think you and I talked about, I don't know, it might have been on one of the two haws in, in December or January, but Miles Turner had done an interview with Michael Scotto, I believe it was a and a and he had said, you know, we thought he was talking about their outlook and it said, you know, but then TJ had his setback. We thought we were going to have him at the start of the season. And I remember I told you, I'm like, that's the first time I've heard anybody actually say, publicly that he had a setback and like and i'm not trying to like call miles turner out like he was just being honest in an interview but that was the first time i'd heard anybody with the team say that word and it's possible that he just used it in passing and, and whatever but it just kept being portrayed as i mean the, the actual terminology that was used if you recall the timeline was in mid-august tj tweeted i played basketball today i had fun and then within a couple of weeks the team had said that he was going to be out for training camp, basically indefinitely, because the foot was healing, but slower than expected. And now who knows when this actual other setback actually occurred, but, like, when he was there at media day, when Rick Carlisle was asked about it, I mean, he said that the hope was – that was the first time he used the phrase, that the hope was that it would be weeks, not months. And it's like, at what point did they know? Like, you have to think that they – they clearly wanted to try to run this team back or at least were willing to wait until, you know, whatever player. Now we know Tyrese became available later on or Ben Simmons or whoever it was, but like, it just, it's very hard to think through those moves because obviously the team's in somewhat of a sticky situation. If TJ doesn't want that information public, it is his health information. And I do remember Rick Carlisle saying like, I can't say specifics at media day about, what they saw on the scan or, or what's going on. So like, I don't want to say that it was his job to be forthright, but it is interesting that even when they came out and said like, he's going to be out for the year that they still didn't put in there themselves that he had the stress reaction. Whoa, shared that. So like it did get put out there because those two things came out almost concurrently. So, um, Obviously, we're not going to know where Woj's sourcing comes from, but it did make it hard. And I'm I'm glad that you pointed out that for TJ's sake, like this had to be this had to be so sucky to have that happen to you twice. You can't play basketball for two straight years, basically. And then to have it constantly, you know, for months on end, you know, he had another favorable scan, but there's no timetable for return. And it just doesn't seem like those things can even both be concurrently possible like at a certain point in time if you have so many favorable scans there has to be a timetable for you and you'd be able to return to the court and a lot of that was kind of getting put on him as much as the team being somewhat secretive about it and yeah I do just want to close out and say that like the Pacers definitely missed him the last two seasons am I going to say that it would have definitely made them a playoff team no because there's no way to know that but if you look at the numbers and things other things have changed besides just TJ being out. There's been other guys out. Miles Turner's missed, you know, a lot of games the last two seasons. Other players have missed games and they've also changed defensive systems twice now, arguably for the worse. But when he was available over these 3 seasons and in games, I think they allowed like 108 points per 100. And when he's been in the games that he did not play, that number is much higher because they just they don't have anybody with his skill set they can do what he does in terms of being a scorer who can still score when leveraged into more difficult shots, and also defend at the other end of the floor. I still do think there's a strong case that, especially last year, he was their best on-ball defender. Like you can try to do stuff with Tory Craig, but he's not going to give you the stuff on offense that TJ did. So um, I think that they definitely did miss him. I don't know what his future's going to be, but I mean, even Scott Agnes had um, quotes in his on his Substack from. Rick Carlisle's interview that he did um, w- about TJ being out in the aftermath of of the team sharing their statement. And Rick said, our Scott asked, you said you expect him to be back. I assume you mean back on the court to play in games, not necessarily with the Pacers. You don't know that yet. Is that correct? And Rick Carlisle said, when I say being back, he will be back playing. I don't know where or when that will be. We'd love to have him back. And that was one of the reasons we had hoped that he could get healthy and get on the court at the end of the year. So, you know, I don't know what the future holds there. You know, he is like Malcolm Brogdon, not necessarily completely on the same timeline. And, you know, there would be injury risk depending upon what you do. And if, if you did like a one year prove it deal or if they're just gonna let him test free agency and move on, but he was a valuable piece when he was healthy and available. And I don't fully understand why, it ever just didn't come out that look like this is going to be a very long road. We shouldn't expect that in, you know, weeks, be that, whatever the definition of that is that he could potentially be back on the court.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. That sums it up for me too. It's uh, just a frustrating situation. Um, And it's hard to believe that it's already been shit. I mean, a year and a half since bubble tj um it feels like longer but it really has only been a year and a half just because of the two condensed seasons but um i just hope he's able to get back and and get get close to his form because he was putting together a really special uh even in a fairly rough playoff series like he was pretty good um to get to see him just back to who he was and um I'm, i'm hopeful for him because he has lost some of his prime playing time in years and um can only hope that he can come back and, and be who he was or, or get back to something close to that um I, I before we uh you know leave on a completely dire note like that uh we do have some positive things to talk about um i do do you have time if i could do a couple quick rapid fire questions for you and then we talk about how I'll shine
0: oh yes i have time
1: okay cool um there was just so much to watch in these three games. I, I condensed my viewing to this morning because of some, some crazy travel stuff. But um, I want to just send send you a couple quick rapid fire start subsets um, from this three game stretch. So all you do is just say "start subset." We don't have to elaborate on it unless you absolutely want to. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a couple. Are you ready? I'm ready. Lance Stevenson's second quarter defense against Memphis
0: um i don't think there was any redeeming qualities about anybody's defense so i'm gonna have to sit that in that game
1: yeah that is a that is a good choice uh houston's jerseys
0: oh that's a sit that's a sit what
1: you're gonna i love those jerseys so much the there was
0: there they're very busy that was they're distracting busy, for good. me to watch
1: oh i love them. um I think you just missed the mark on that one, but it's okay. Uh, Garrison Matthews missed dunk.
0: I forgot that was even a thing. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna start that because it, it brought me something entertaining that we can now talk about. So yeah,
1: it was very nice for the Pacers. Very tough for for Garrison Matthews. Um, Jayshawn Tate. Sean Tate. Jay Sean
0: Tate. I like Jay Sean Tate, so I mean, I don't, I'll be cautiously optimistic and say sub.
1: Yeah, I love Jay Sean Tate. I wish he could shoot more, but just a really fun player. Uh, We already hit on Goga. I was going to have Goga defending Christian Wood. Um, How about Quinn Buckner saying Woods every time Christian Wood was mentioned on court? I don't think he called him Christian Wood. He called him Christian Woods every single time.
0: I think he also called Shungun Sanguine. Yeah. Like Penguin.
1: <laughs> yes, the Sanguine Penguin. Um, so, yeah, where, where are you at with that one?
0: Um, I'm going to start it. I mean, it's yep. not up there. It's not up there with the Taco Bell gaffe about Taco Fall during preseason. But
1: Oh, God, I forgot I, about that.
0: But I approve.
1: <laughs> How about uh, last one? Josh Hart primary.
0: Um, Can we just uh, – Josh Hart against Tyrese – Tyrese's defense. Uh, hmm. Um. I guess I'm gonna have to sit that because I didn't enjoy watching it.
1: Oh, I enjoyed the Josh Hart experience. I didn't enjoy it from a from a Pacers perspective. Yeah, but uh, very fun for Josh Hart, who's been absolutely demonstrative over like the last week or so. He had a 40 piece. Um, everybody's scoring 40 points in the NBA this season, but yeah, that was fun. Um, I'll try popsicles. I finally tried one, Caitlin um i finally did it
0: and whoa 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. let's really underscore this because this is two years coming almost of me waiting for you to try one of these popsicles and we're just dumping it at the end of a podcast now we did promise that we were going to do this on the last monthly one but i am i'm too excited to hear so Hopefully people stayed with us throughout the entirety of this very long podcast and are going to hear this big reveal. So I, I'm ready. I'm ready.
1: I I mean, I texted you as soon as I, I tried it. I thought it was awesome. Like I, uh, I probably the best popsicle I ever had. Um, I was very weary at first because I wasn't sure. I was like, you yeah, know, there's not really like a, a lot of sugar in this. I'm not really a super sugary person though. Um, and I found it endearing. Like I liked it. I was like, okay, you know, I take like the first bite and I'm like this is pretty good. Like it's not overly sweet. It's not overwhelming, but I get the fruity taste, but it doesn't taste like I'm eating like I had a I had the black cherry popsicle for reference. It didn't just feel like I was just eating cherries. Um so I was fond of that. You could tell it was a popsicle, but I was like this is different and I like it. And it was uh it was very good. It's going to. I don't know if it's going to become a regular part of my uh, of my diet, but I enjoyed it, and I'm going to finish the box. And I got to Alabama, and I texted you again. The first thing I saw when I opened my sister's freezer a box of Outshine popsicles. They followed me here. Um, I'm I'm glad I tried it. Uh, it's been a very fun running bit for two years, but I'm glad to uh, to have actually forced myself to buy it at the grocery store.
0: Okay, so now I need to know what type, what flavor did your sister have?
1: Uh my sister has a variety pack, uh, but she has the bars, not the, uh, not the actual uh, pops. And I'm, in, I'm interested to try a bar. I, I, I like bars from now and then. And again, so. I'll, uh,
0: but they have chunky fruit.
1: Oh, okay, then maybe I won't try the bar.
0: I, <laughs> I mean, never- the pineapple ones have chunky. They have chunks of pineapple in them, and the strawberry That's ones definitely terrible. have chunks of strawberry. I, I think that they're quite good, but. What I find most impressive about this entire thing is that you somehow found a box of Outshine popsicles and a flavor that I have not tried.
1: You haven't tried I, the black cherry one.
0: No, no, I don't really like cherry. Oh, I love in cherry in general, but I steer away from sugar-free things. I, I, I like yeah, sugar. Um, so I was surprised that you picked the no sugar and that you found a box that I've never even seen in my grocery store where i go get these so Wait, i don't you're even telling
1: me that they normally have like full sugar
0: yes you can buy no sugar added or just the regular
1: the only reason i bought no sugar added is because that's the only box i could find um i thought that was just like the normal edition uh no, i no. normally yeah i don't i don't i don't mess with the uh fake sugar like when people put like sucralose or no no and stuff like that. i don't do that and that's the only reason i tried these because they didn't have that it was just like regular fruit stuff um
0: no you definitely I mean you might have to dip back in now because okay, i definitely
1: do I'm like wow. you
0: need to find the regular strawberry or the regular I mean the lemon is is delightful um the mango very good and refreshing um, mango is, pretty good. Mango is yeah. very good in the afternoon as a snack um the lime is rather intense but you like lime so you would probably like lime. those the raspberry if you don't like sugar is is pretty sweet so I don't know that I would necessarily say that's next in your outshine journey, but I mean, I don't think that anyone can try one of these and say that they didn't enjoy it or that it wasn't the best popsicle they've ever had. It's just a matter of if you've been living in the dark and have been eating other popsicles that you wouldn't, you wouldn't outright admit that this is the superior, um, snack. And, and and I'm, I'm shocked to hear that you're not going to be going back for more of these every day. I literally eat one of these every day
1: yeah i just like i'm not I, my teeth are really sensitive um so biting into frozen things not uh not my favorite um i did it for you but uh yeah not normally not normally something i go out of my way to do uh like people who bite ice cream i'm not going to be that person who just throws out i think somebody's insane but if you bite into ice cream i am judging you uh i think that it's weird Uh. I think that it's uh, chaotic, actually, to bite into ice cream. Um,
0: Even if it's hard ice cream?
1: What do you mean if it's hard ice cream?
0: Well, there's soft serve ice cream and there's hard ice cream.
1: Like hard ice cream out of a box.
0: Like hard ice cream out of a box that you have to scoop versus soft serve that comes out of a machine that you twirl into a cone. Well, I guess like you can bite into soft serve, I guess. Like, no, you lick soft serve because well, yeah, it's you, soft. You don't lick Hard both. ice cream, I you have both. to bite.
1: Well, so. like, okay, but it's different because, like, I- I'm talking about an ice cream cone, because, like, if you have a waffle cone with quote-unquote hard ice cream and you bite it, I have a problem with you. Um, oh,
0: no, no. You do that? <laughs> yes. No. Why?
1: That's insane. I already I said I wasn't going to say that. I did. It's like, how?
0: I just don't understand how you wouldn't. Like it would take you forever to eat it.
1: It does take me forever. And it starts to it'd be melting. You'd be
0: holding the cone and it'd be melting all down your hand.
1: Maybe this is why I'm lactose intolerant. Uh because I just never ate ice cream right. I never was an ice cream biter. I've always been an ice cream liquor.
0: What if like what if what would what would you do if you got it ordered in a dish?
1: I mean, you just use a spoon, right? But it's all right, but you're going to be biting it. But, okay, see, I think it's different because uh, if you're using a spoon, yes, you're technically biting it, but, like, you don't really have to bite ice cream if you, like... Like
0: you're know, just, just letting like, it melt in your mouth? Yeah, kind of. I have no problem with, like,
1: you know imagine, imagine
0: that can? you have your own box of cones at home and you pull out a box of Briar ice cream, you scoop it out, you shove it into the cone and you eat. like you're gonna sit and lick that entire thing in your house.
1: I probably just wouldn't use a cone honestly so
0: you know what uh, I
1: used to do when I was a kid this is how I I got past it uh I would normally make like ice cream soup when I was at home. so like
0: what is <laughs> happening?
1: I would take ice cream out of the container, put it in a bowl. We're on like chocolate sauce or whatever. Wait, wait,
0: wait, 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 wait! I just want you to know that when you said you would make ice cream soup, that my face is Justin Anderson behind O'Shea Brissett on the <laughs> That is my <laughs> the reaction. New reaction meme, yes. Um, well, like that's not
1: technically soup, but like I don't know. You just like take out the with ice cream in a bowl, put whatever toppings on that you want. I don't really partake in toppings anymore. I did when I was a child. Um. But, like, then I would just, like, mix the hell out of it and make it, like, turn it into soft serve, essentially. It would take, like, five to ten minutes to actually do, but, like, that's just what I did when I was a kid. I don't know. Because um, then you can actually eat it, like, with, with a spoon without having to This it.
0: sounds like the equivalent of drinking cereal milk. Oh, that's disgusting. I but yet you're milk. making ice cream soup. Well, What's the difference? But it
1: wouldn't get, like,
0: It's sugary buttered. milk. It.
1: <laughs> it's different because there's not chunks of anything in it like that's cereal milk just loses me because a i don't drinking milk is weird i don't understand that um i did when i was a kid but now that i'm a grown-up uh maybe I, I guess occasionally a grown-up depends um but i can't i can't get there with cereal milk people who like there's like cereal milk flavored things and i think that's weird
0: Oh, there's flat out. You can just buy cereal milk.
1: Yeah, that's that's great. Like a
0: sugary, milky drink, and that kind of sounds what the, like what this dessert you're making was. It's trust me,
1: it's very different. It's better. You should try it sometime.
0: I mean, I I think it's funny that two people that can't even really eat dairy have talked this long about ice cream, and we probably <laughs> I, don't even eat it.
1: <laughs> I mean, I love it. Don't get me wrong. I bite the bullet very often and eat ice cream. Um, like it's it's kind of worth it. And most of the, uh, the dairy free substitutes just aren't good enough or too expensive to actually warrant buying. So I just, yeah, I just go full dairy anyways and just know I'm going to have a bad rest of the day and feel lethargic.
0: No, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I don't think ice cream is good enough to endure the pain most of the time. It's not a top tier dessert. Where are
1: you at on ice cream cake? I think ice cream cake is super overrated. Like I just don't think it's very good flat out.
0: I, I think it's fine. I mean, yeah. Like it's
1: okay, but I'm just like, I just rather have actual cake. Yeah, for know? sure. For sure. Well, I think that wraps up another episode of the Indie Corros podcast. Uh, we got into some great stuff on here. Caitlin, do you have anything uh, fun or exciting that you want to mention before we get out of here?
0: Maybe. Ooh. That's all okay. I can say right now. <laughs> okay. I'm excited. Maybe.
1: I'm excited. Well, to everyone listening, thank you for listening. Keep a, uh, keep an eye out for Caitlin's Maybe um i actually have something kind of fun coming out uh in the next couple of days slash week um depends how long it takes me to actually write but yeah um appreciate you to everyone listening if you haven't already be sure to go rate right and review us over on apple podcast or on spotify as always drop us uh, uh any questions comments thoughts over on ic or on twitter and most importantly have a good rest of your day and thank you for listening